right, here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Here we are. Yep. What is this, episode 77? Yeah, might be. I'm not, yeah, sure. I, I think it's 77. That seems yeah. about right. That seems about right. Because last last episode, you were singing uh, 76 trombones. Oh, good point. Yes. yes. Excellent. Excellent old guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. and, and then I broke into uh, all the other music man stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Good not times. Gonna, not going to do that today. There's nope, no cassette. There's no 77. No. Nope. Are there any, any songs or anything with 77? What's not that I'm aware of? Yeah. 77. Yeah. Hey, this is Ollie. Well, maybe this is Scott. And um, I'm trying to think if I feel like there might be a song about 1977, but oh, it's not the is there, thing. Oh, uh, there's a, uh, isn't there? No, there's one about 1979. Isn't that like a Smashing Pumpkins thing? Yeah. 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 That's yeah. a good one. No. Yeah. There you yeah. Go. Okay. Yeah. All right, All right, there you go. Okay. So this isn't this isn't the monkey business area. <laughs> <This isn't, laughs> or maybe they are. Who knows? Maybe they are. Yeah. No, so today we are going to take on one of the biggest uh, issues in teacher preparation that there that exists. Oh gosh. Yeah. It is, it is, is the it is the first question out of every pre-service teacher's mouth when they come to your methods class. Well, I'm not, I'm going to say it's not just them. It's also oh, if no. like you go out in the schools, it's like the thing that they talk about too. It's yeah. the, and I'm not, I don't mean to poo poo it, you know? Oh no, we wouldn't want to poo poo anything because no, because that's not what we do here in, in no. science in between. We, do we don't poo poo. Actually, we do poo poo a lot. Actually. <laughs> that's really not how you should say that. Uh, um, but here's the thing. <laughs> What this we're going to talk about thing. today <laughs> is classroom management. Yeah. We're going to talk about what that term is and why Ali and I dislike it so much and why it's it's um I'm glad we share that dislike. I'm I'm yeah. you know well, it's I was like, assuming it. I'd actually No, 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 I do. It. Oh no, I do. I I I share your dislike for the term classroom management. Yeah. You know, as so, as if students should be managed. Yes. You know? Yes, like cattle or something. Yeah. Yeah. Manage the herd. Manage them. Um, yeah. Well, and this came up for me this week because I'm I'm supervising student teachers this semester and I was in seminar and we had a student raise an issue about this, like a classroom management issue. And a teacher we, candidate. Like a teacher like, candidate, yeah. Okay. Who who was talking about their classroom experience and was asking about a question about classroom management. And so we had, you know, a, a conversation about it and, um, and it led me to really say, wow, it is amazing how differently I think about this idea than I did probably when I was a teacher, um, which was a long time ago, but, um, but, you know, there, there was just this, this immediate um, by some people in the room, there was this immediate, sense that oh you have to get control of your classroom you have to right. get get your kids you know and then well it went into differentiation after that which really got weird but we'll talk about that another day but um but this idea of like what is it what is the role of a teacher in a classroom with regard to their students and what is that power relationship and how is that maintained or or not i guess but um, cause classroom management usually ends up focusing on the bad kids, right? The kids that are miss quote unquote misbehaving and need to be written up or yeah. punished in some way. 
so I, I guess I was, I benefited from the fact that one of the, my earliest mentors in my teacher education um, didn't talk about classroom management from a discipline standpoint, like presented it right, like almost the beginning stages of my, my career from a planning standpoint Hmm. and like really focused on like, you know, if, if you're having discipline problems in your class, if you're having uh, students who are not paying attention or acting out or something, then what does that say about what you're doing? Yeah. Like, so she turned it, she turned it back on me and say like, what are you doing? And, and, and she was also the person who gave me this mantra of like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't ever yell at your students. And that was the, that was the bar she set. And it's like, okay, well, if that's the bar, then if I can't yell at them, right. Then like, what am I going to do? What am I going to (laughs) do? Right. And, and so it's all about like, I mean, then later in my career, I had a, uh, I, I have a colleague who's right now who, um, he, he's always like people have needs, students, adults, sure. we all have needs. And like whenever like there's an issue in a classroom, the question is like what needs aren't being met? Right. And that's, again, like a foundational question that just like changes perspective completely. Right. right. Like sometimes it's attention. Right. Maybe it's yeah. like a student or maybe they're just bored. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that's where it comes back to our role as a teacher and the activities and, 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 and lessons we plan, you know, right. I know, I know I, I, I cringed when I said activities, cause I know that's not, you know, but, but, but I think that <sighs> if, if we have discipline, pro- I like, and I, I want to make sure it's clear. Like I've taught like really awesome, like classes with like AP physics and those classes, I could come in, set a book on the you know table, go sit in the back of the room and just hang out. There's not going to be any discipline problems. And so that's a bulk of my career. But I've also taught some classes that were like, you know, really rough classes where like it would be a struggle for people to, to, to come in and teach. And so it's not like I've lived this really privileged, you know, career of teaching where it's all been, you know, easy peasy. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked with really difficult students, um, but I think that it all it all comes back to well, what are you doing with them? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, there's sorts of, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking there's really two layers to this. So there's the individual layer, which is, you know, how is it, how is an individual kid acting or behaving in your class on a given day? Right. And then there's the systemic part of this, which is the organization of kids who sort of quote unquote, misbehave more often, they tend to get pushed into lower level classes and then they are in higher concentration with each other. Right. So, so as you said, like the AP classes are kids who don't, who generally don't misbehave um, because lots of reasons, but, but they are, um, you know, they, and, and then the kids in the lower track classes um, are, are the kids that, that are consistently judged as misbehaving. So they're pushed down below. And then the irony is what we do is we give the worst pedagogy to the ones at the bottom, right? Right. Because we're like, okay, well, these kids are really out of control, quote unquote, crazy kids. Right. So we have to really buckle down and give them lectures and notes and quizzes and sit in your seat, be quiet. And and note taking guides where they just are copying stuff down and right. Yeah. So we, so we make, so we're like, these kids are bored in class. So what's the solution for that? Let's make class more boring. Right. Because that'll help. 
And so then it's like, so now it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You've put a, a kid who has misbehaved in the past for whatever reason. And, you know, this is also a thing of like, if we think about it system wide, like these kids, maybe it was middle school that they got labeled as misbehaving. Right. Yeah. And got put in the lower track. And once you're there, you know, you're shackled there. Like that's, you know, you're it's and, and, very and, different. And, and to some percentage of those students are kids who probably are, you know, have the ability and is probably the pacing of the lesson in a middle school or the, the way that's being presented or the types of uh, ways that draws them into the lesson are, are just, is not, you know, playing to their needs. Right. So they're, they're bored. They're acting up quote unquote acting up and then they get, you know, disciplined and then they get labeled and then they are put in classes that are, aren't, aren't challenging them. And, you know, and that's, you know, this is, pretty systemic when we're talking about students of color yeah you know when we you know because in schools like overwhelmingly when there's diverse schools you know our our students of color are are labeled with all kinds of you know um learning disabilities and some of them are you know real learning disabilities that they possess or they you know totally misidentify them or they're labeled as bad kids you know, and they're constantly disciplined and they're, you know, and then they're like, well, why am I coming to school? It's just like this whole, like you say, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And, and I think we could, we could do better as, as educators and we could do better as teacher educators in preparing them. But I think when we start to use that term classroom management, that it, I, it almost sets it up as if, if you're not managing a classroom, if the students are misbehaving, then you got to take control. You got to take control. And here's how you do it. You know, you don't smile till Thanksgiving. I know that's the one I I never subscribed to that. I never, but it was definitely a thing. Like that was the thing you were told was you don't smile till Thanksgiving. You don't tell kids anything about yourself. Um, You don't like, you you can't let them get the, get quote unquote, get the upper hand. Right. right? There's all these rules about um, these myths, these myths of teaching. Yeah. And they were, and they were, they're driven by this idea of management and it comes from a management paradigm, right? So it's like, you're the boss and these are your workers and they have to work for you. And if they're not working, then you have to figure out a way to punish them into working for you. Um, And you know, it, when when you really think about this, I mean, we talk about all the time how teaching is a relational activity mm-hmm. and it's about relationships that you build with your kids. Like it's this is not a healthy way to have a relationship with another human being. Right. So it's just a crazy way to think about how your classroom operates is to think that my job is to make, make very strict rules. And then if the people do not conform to them, to then punish them for not conforming. So, um, I mean, it's, you know your point about uh um equity and and race i think was where i was headed with this systemic piece right i mm-hmm. mean that's the nature of the system is it's not only that we put these misbehaving kids in these lower track classes it's that we systematically classify certain kinds of kids as misbehaving kids um and not capable and not intelligent and not whatever right and and the 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 way that we do that almost always has or always has something to do with race um and so you know we we really have to think about you know there's all these studies of uh what happens when kids are put in detention or have punishment in school and how that increases the 
the probability that they will have interactions with, uh, with the police later in life. Right. Yeah. And so if we disproportionately are punishing kids of color that way by detention and suspension and all those kinds of things, well, we're contributing to the fact that those folks are having to interact with the police and we know what that means. So, um, right. I mean, it's, it's, well, uh, there's, uh, there's a couple of my colleagues who are really, that's a focus of their work is that school to prison pipeline, right? Where that's yeah. a, it's like sets it, you know, school sets them up in, in a lot of ways for, uh, you know, incarceration and yeah. that's, is tragic. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, and even if it doesn't, again, our system, you know, is part of the process of marginalization, like school systems, that's part of what they do is there is the structure of them systematically marginalizes certain groups of kids. And we can think about all sorts of ways that they do that. And they're not all racial, but, but race is a big piece of it. So when we talk about classroom management, like we really have to think about this in, in again, both like the local classroom way, like how do you work with an individual kid who's, who's, who's like acting I don't even know what the right term is to describe it, but is, is doing something that you find disturbing to the classroom community. Right. right. So you're like, okay, this kid, we, I need to talk to this kid and find out what's going on. Right. So you can send them to the hall, you can send them to the office, you can write them up, you can call their parents. Those, those are the traditional ways of dealing with it. Right. As you, as you, you remove the kid from the context because they're distracting other kids and whatever it is. Or, and, um, but, understanding, like thinking about what that does to both your personal relationship to that kid and what that does to that kid's relationship to the school system, right? How they think about themselves with regard to school and what ends up happening to them long-term with regard to school, right? So um, it's, uh, it's, it's and, and, and the language around this has not changed in a long time. Like we're still talking about classroom management very much the same way. And in this student teaching seminar, there were, you know, there were the same old tropes that you hear, like these kids don't respect me the way I deserve to be respected. It's like, you don't deserve to be respected at all. Just because you walk into the room and you're, you're you're standing near the chalkboard doesn't necessarily mean that you deserve respect. Right. It's a, it's an earned thing. Exactly. And then it's earned from how you, you know, how you interact with the students just as much as how they interact with you. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that one of the, one of the things I think that has been a huge, I don't know, uh, has kind of taken up the air of in this conversation, at least from, from my perspective is the, is the Harry Wong stuff. Right. Oh yeah. He's I think such if, a sweet man though. Have you met him? No, I mean, I've just seen videos of him, but he All seems right. like a sweet man. Well, like, like that, yeah, that was totally a thing when I was in school. That was right. Yeah. So, for, yeah. So for, if folks don't know what we're talking about, Harry Wong wrote this book and it, it's still available on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, the first first days of school, the first day of yeah. school. Yeah. The, actually, it's called the first days of school, yeah. uh, how to be an effective teacher. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably like in its third, fourth edition or whatever at this yeah. point. But it came out in the mid 90s, sometime in the 90s, um, which really talked about like, uh, all of the routine behaviors that you need to do in your classroom and practice with your students, you know, and make sure that they know how to distribute papers. They know how yes. to, you know, like all of it, like all of it, like when yeah. they walk into the room, what they're supposed to do, where they're supposed to put their stuff. And this is something that if it's, if it's important, you need to practice it. You need to make yeah. sure that your expectations are clear for your students. Yeah. And, and it's like, 
it, it, you know, you're talking about that industrial model of education. It's exact. It's that yeah. exactly. It's like, how do we do this? No, I mean, I don't mean to like, you know, totally put it in a single box because I mean, mm-hmm. there, there might be some things in there like that are beneficial for some folks, but I just walked away from that. Just going like, okay, like this is we're we're running, you know, a machinery. We're, we're yeah. running like a, like a big factory, yeah. you know? Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it's fascinating because classrooms do need structure. Like you can't oh, yeah. just have mayhem. Um, so we're not, we're not advocating for just like, let kids run around, do whatever they want in your classroom. But I think what we're saying is the way that you shape that behavior, um, is by providing interesting, engaging, um, thought provoking, um, and sometimes, frankly, difficult, regardless of what track it is, uh, problems yeah. for them to grapple with, right? Because, because the truth is that human beings do like to be challenged. Like, I don't mean in a negative way, like getting up in somebody's face. I'm saying, you know, like there is a sense of I, w- I, I feel good when I accomplish stuff. And if you can provide an environment where kids can feel like they're accomplishing stuff, they're they're gonna they're gonna contribute. They're gonna not be. Um, I mean, everybody has bad days, but they're in a, in a systematic way. They're not. Sounds like be, a song. <laughs> yeah, it does sound like, <laughs> I think it is a song. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it is. Um, so, uh, you know, Sorry. It's, that's okay. It's, it's just, yeah. I mean, this, this idea of like, that's going back to your point about planning, like what you're really doing as a teacher is designing a learning environment where people come in, they know what they're doing. I mean, clarity is super important. Like oh, when, yeah. when I go to, into my, see my uh, interns teach, um, almost always the way lessons go off the rails is when the, the, the teacher is not clear about what the task is. Yep. And then kids are confused. They don't know what they're doing. And that, and then they immediately like, so, you know, because and this contribute is contributed to by the idea that like you should never be wrong in school. And so yeah. kids don't want to raise their hand and say, uh, Mr. I, don't Dran, I don't know what's going on here. Like you are, yeah. you've confused me with your directions and I don't know what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and you can get to a place where kids will do that in your class, but it's not the, it's not their natural predisposition. Right. So or we armor up as, as it, I explained this already. Yeah. Just do it. You know? The directions are at the top of the page. If if yeah. you can't read them, Ollie, maybe yeah. we should put you in a different class. Yeah. Like a dummy class. How do you feel about that, Ollie? <laughs> I'm not okay with that. <laughs> I but I think the other part, like you're you're right. Like if if it where lessons go awry is, you know, clarity. But I think that there's also something about like, especially in a science classroom, around like um distribution of materials or management of materials. If we're going to like, I'll use that term there, like management of materials, like Mm -hmm. how you get, like, if you're talking lab equipment, you know, like I've seen so many beginning teachers who are in science classrooms who who go, okay, all the stuff's at the table over here, just go. And like 24 students are running across the room (laughs) to all get that equipment. And it's like, hold on. Is there a different way that you can manage this equipment so that yeah. you don't because that's like right from the beginning, like you can you could see, you know, disaster. Bad things are gonna happen. Yeah. Disasters afoot out of foot. And it's like, come on, you know. 
it, it, it take you know a few minutes at the beginning and put them on on all the lab stations so that when you send the students to lab stations that they the stuff's already there or send them to the lab station and send one person from each group come on up and grab some things so now you've taken 24 and cut it down to six yeah. or like there's a, there's ways to do that where you can give clear instructions and manage equipment without it necessarily going completely wacko yeah you know? yeah but then again it comes down to the thing you have to manage is your actions as the teacher and your planning as a teacher, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Uh, it's, it goes back to that issue of like, there needs to be structure, Yeah, but the, but the structure doesn't mean that everybody sits in their seat silently and doesn't move. Like that's not structure. That's suffocation. That's, yeah. that's horribleness. So yeah, it's, I think you're right there. And especially in science classrooms where there are materials, some of whom or some of which can be dangerous, yeah. right? Like you can have chemicals out. You can have, I mean, I don't think anybody does actual dissections anymore, maybe a few, but you know, that there are things in science classrooms where people can, can hurt themselves. And so you do have to take that seriously. You can't, you can't just say, oh yeah, it's do whatever you want. Um, but like you say that those are the things you plan for. Those are the structures you design for and you you design a classroom to to establish certain kinds of norms about how we behave right? right and it's and that's very different you know again if we're sticking with this management thing like the difference between rules and norms is huge like rules you can write uh, on the board right like we will all respect each other well okay that's a great rule what does that mean right yeah. like you those those uh, you know you can't be out of your seat unless you ask permission like that's a rule but it's, it's a stupid rule. It is a dumb rule. So you know, I got, I, I never said, I don't know if I've mentioned this and I had a principal, gosh, it was maybe my third or fourth year teaching who observed me teach. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm, I, I think I might've mentioned this in another episode who um, that was the feedback he gave me. There was a student who got up to sharpen their pencil. Oh yeah. You, I don't know if you told the story here, but I've heard it. Yeah. yeah. And that was the comment. That was the, you know, you need to have better control of your classroom because the student got up and sharpened their pencil without while you were speaking about while I was like, I was like doing, you know, some sort of like demonstration or something. The student got up, sharpened their pencil, came back and sat down. And the principal said, yeah, you need to have better uh, control of your classroom. It's mayhem in your classroom. And I was like, I didn't actually even remember the student getting up. (laughs) I was like, you know, kids, kids get up to get Kleenexes. Like why, if you, you like, you treat them with the, you know, the, the level of expect expectation that you yeah. want. Right. I was like, look, I, I'm, I think they're going to be fine. Be able to get up and get a Kleenex or get a, you know, sharpen their pencil, or whatever. They don't need to ask me my permission. Yeah. Right. And this was, I think a middle school classroom. It's like, yeah. like, yeah, what's what I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah, get it. No, it's like, it's never like running it. it like a prison, right? I mean, it's like, you, you know, you have to, yeah. And but. that that's what, what came became clear at that point was that this person and I had very different perceptions of what learning meant mm-hmm. and what teaching meant. And that we were, I was never going to really get the kind of, he wasn't an instructional leader. He was a disciplinarian. And yeah. it was going to be hard for me to grow with, by getting feedback from, from them. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's a nice distinction. I think that, that, um, you know, between instructional leader and, and disciplinarian. And I think that's true. You can name teaching that way and you can name being a principal that way too. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, this, this fundamental 
question about like what what is the purpose of a classroom and and how should it operate um you know we talk about it as being a community but you can't have a you know a community where there is an absolute power and everyone else has to has to kowtow to that like that's that's a dictatorship that's fascism right, right? that's like that's, that's 1984 that's where yeah, like all, exactly. all animals are equal yeah. but some are more some, equal some some are more equal and we're the yeah. more equal animals <laughs> right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no but i think you know like when it, it just you know the thing that i'm just stunned by is the willingness for people to think about the children in their classroom in a way that they would never think about any other human being in their life. Right. Like um, that, that this person's job is to do exactly what I say and follow the rules all the time. And if not, they must be punished. Um, like you can't have relationships with people in your life that way. And, and well, I guess you probably could, but they're not going to um, be very healthy and it doesn't lead to a very happy life. But, but, um, but generally speaking, you won't have a lot of people around you for long if that's the way you treat everybody. So thinking that that's the way classrooms should operate just seems like insanity. And who thought this up in the first place, but it goes back to your issue or not your issue, your description of the, the industrial model, right? Like there was, uh, and, but it, it probably predates that because pre-industrial, classrooms probably still look like that because ultimately on some levels classrooms are like one of the things that schools do is they socialize kids to be part of society. And so part of it is the view by many people is that that means that you have to control them. Like you have to show them that the, the, the state, which is how, what the, the school acts as has power and they don't, and therefore they should, um, you know, do what they're told. Yeah, that I it's so like it's it's so hard for me because like I just don't see the world that way. And yeah. it's like it's like really difficult, you know, for me to understand how I mean, I guess. If I'm a new teacher and I walk into a classroom and kids are misbehaving, you know, quote unquote misbehaving, um, I guess it's it, it, it from an identity standpoint. I start to question myself as a teacher, like, okay, am I not a good teacher? Am I like, do I have been, cause I mean, we, this is some of the research we, you know, I did with my dissertation about like, you know, we, one of the themes that emerged from my research was the, you know, being in the hotspot, being in the hotspot where like, you're questioning your ability, you're questioning, you know, what the student's perceptions of you as a leader in the classroom. And so you have to assert that authority. You have to assert that, like either assert the authority of, of um, the content. You know, if you're teaching something and they, they go, hey, is this right? And you're like, yes, it is. Put it in your notebook. Or, you know, asserting your authority in terms of that the students are misbehaving and they, you, they, they don't see well, as you said, you know, your, your uh, one teacher uh, candidate was saying, well, they don't respect me, you know. And, and, and so it's like, well, I'm going to like take the respect, yes. right? I'm going to I will demand the respect, but that's not how respect works. It doesn't work that way. You know, it doesn't work by demanding. I, you know, no. I mean, I don't know, maybe in the military, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I don't have well, that, right. those experiences in, in those contexts, but, but I don't know if that's respect as, as much as uh, subservience, which is not the yeah. same thing. Yeah. You know, so this is going to be completely like left, like going off in a left turn. But this, this is, I think uh, I was listening to uh, science of happiness recently. And uh -huh. do you know this pot, you know, this podcast happiness science? lab. 
uh, it is the happiness lab, but they have yeah. a podcast that's like real short stuff. Um, usually yeah. Lori like Santos, min- right? Uh, no, it's Dalkner. Uh, Dacker. Oh, and this is a different thing then. Yeah. Dacker Keltner. Is his Dacker name. Keltner. Do you not know yeah. Dacker Keltner? And so it's like a, a 20 minute podcast usually. And like the first 10 minutes is, you know, talking about like some practice on mindfulness, you know, happiness practice. And the second half is talking about the science behind it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, you know, 10 minutes, this 10 minutes, that. And it's like, it's really great for me because I always get to see, and it's, it's cool because they're always bringing somebody in who's some somewhat famous, you know, kind yeah. of famous, you know, yeah. um, either as a researcher or, and I know this is way down the rabbit hole at this point. Um, but, uh, they had one recently about, about fears and like, how do you, you know, um, you know, conquer your fears and how do you conquer your fears with working with other people? Like, especially people who may be adversarial, maybe, you know, coming from a different position, position or perspective. And so my head since hearing this has been really spinning around because they, they, gave this sort of like mindfulness practice. Like if you were going to like, you know, think about like, you know, meditation, you know, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about like how this could be framed from a, you know, teacher perspective or teacher ed p- perspective. Cause these are the things that they ask you to think about when you're taking like a moment of mindfulness and you're thinking about like somebody who you're having challenges with, yeah. i.e. maybe a student that you're having. And then sure. it says, so these are the things they're asking you to think about. Um, and I'll, we'll put a, uh, a link in the show notes for this. This person has a body and mind just like me. This person has feelings, emotions, and thoughts just like me. This person has sad, has been sad, disappointed, angry, hurt, confused, just like me. This person, they experience pain and suffering just like me. So it, what it does is it humanizes the, uh, the, the other. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and yep. it takes it from being the perspective of something that we have to control or manage or discipline right. to start to like really focus in on all of the affective dimensions that we as teachers need to support, mm-hmm. you know, and that comes back to one of the, the themes of the show. It's all about relationships. Yep, absolutely. And that's a great example. I mean, it, it also makes me think, too, of this idea of um and meditation talks about, you know, meditation teachers talk about this, but therapists talk about this. There's lots of ways that you access this idea, which is that, you know, there are, there are feelings that you have, and then there's a story that you tell yourself about. Oh feeling. yeah. Yeah. And so that goes for classroom management too, right? Like you hear it when you say like, this kid is disrespecting me. It's like, well, let's think about that. That's so this kid is doing something. And to your, I think almost the first thing you said, they're doing something because they're trying to meet some need, right? Right. It might be attention. It might be um, they're just frustrated or sad or whatever. And they're trying to, to express that feeling, whatever it is, they have some need and they're doing something as a result. And then that, that behavior that they're engaging in is making you feel a certain way. Right. And, and to some degree, you can't control that, right. Your, your feeling response, you can't control because that's your body. You know, it's, it's too visceral, like literally visceral reaction to that thing. But the second thing, right. And meditation talks about this is the second arrow, right. The story that you tell yourself about that matters because if you say this kid is disrespecting me, well, what that does is make you angrier or more sad or upset or whatever bad feeling you have. And that makes you make bad decisions about how to interact with this kid. But if you tell the story, this kid is having a really hard time and struggling with something and they need something, yep. um, can I help them 
like that is a very different positionality that you've put yourself in. And, and so I think, you know, again, if you want to have a relationship with somebody, that's how you have to think about it. You have to think about like, I'm having a feeling and that feeling is mine. It's not the other person's fault. And now, but from that, I have to tell myself, uh, well, I don't have to tell, but I do tell myself a story about it. So I have to think about, well, what is the story that I want to tell? What's the best story I can tell about this, about this situation? So let's, let's, I think it would be good to like, I mean, I think you've explained it really clearly, but I, I think about examples and like an example that I, I face is, you know, a student is sleeping in class. Okay, a student falls asleep in your class, and the story that teachers tell themselves is, okay, this kid clearly isn't respecting me, isn't interested in the content, isn't interested in being successful, you know, doesn't care about my class, doesn't care about being like doing well in my class. But there's like a million other stories that can happen there. Right. Like maybe this is the first part of this student's day that they are in a safe environment in which they could probably get, because like yeah. maybe last night they were sleeping someplace in which safety was their primary concern. Yeah. We don't know that where kids come from, right? Yeah. We don't know their, their home lives. And I think one of the things that's, and we, and we, I think we talked a little bit about this with when we talked about the pandemic and remote instruction is that opened up, it exposed a lot of people's homes, lives, home lives to, to teachers. And they saw their students in, in ways. And that was like eye opening for some teachers, but those those challenges didn't go away, right? So, so we have a kid who comes to class who maybe is dealing with a, you know a, a parent who's an alcoholic who comes in and is chaos every night. And so this kid is like not sleeping because maybe he's taking care of, you know, protecting his little brother, a little sister. And he comes to your classroom where he knows that it's a safe environment and he can finally get some rest. Yeah. And the story we're telling ourselves about like all the other things, no, not even close to the mark, right? Yeah. Not even close to the mark. But that's exactly the point is that if, if we as teachers stop that kid aside and say, hey, you know, I saw you're falling asleep in, in, in class. What, what's going on? Can, yeah. How can I help you? And maybe they'll tell you, maybe they won't, yeah. you know. But at least what you're doing is coming from a positionality of, of care, right? Yeah. Of care. Yeah. And yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think, and, and to, to choose a less extreme example, like we had, we had an issue. Um, one of my students brought up in, in the, in the spring, I think it was in the spring. No, it was, no, it was this fall. And, um, you know, he was talking about how frustrated he was about kids using phones in class. And at first I was like, oh, this is just like, why are we really going to spend time? Like we have, we have limited time together and I, I don't want to spend it talking about phones in class. Like that seems like a stupid waste of time. Like we can talk about interesting stuff. Like how do you teach science? Um, but, but I, I, I checked myself and we, and tried to think about a way to do this in a positive way. And so what we did was the next time we met, I said, okay, let's take this thing and do what we just described, which is like, let's put on the board all the possible reasons a kid could be using the phone in class and literally list, you know, okay, well, they might be communicating with their sick parent. They might be, you know, and they might be playing a game and they might be, you know, looking at their Instagram or they might be Snapchatting. Like, but, but when you do that and you really generate all the possibilities, you recognize there's a ton of reasons why, so, so then if, if there's all these different reasons for why a kid might be using a phone in class, why is there only one response? 
Yeah. So the response is always, give me your phone. We're going to put it in the phone parking lot, or I'm going to take it until the end of the day. You can that, right. pick it up later. And, it, and if you're th- think about that situation from the perspective, of, if that student has a sick parent, or maybe, you know, there's right now in our community, there's, you know, somebody who is an acquaintance of mine, but who's, who has kids that are my kid's age, mm-hmm. you know, who my kids know and have played with and all this, but he's at like end stage cancer. Like yeah. our community is like, like really dealing with this, yeah. you know, and those kids are in the same class as my, my son, mm-hmm. you know, and I can't imagine, you know, that kid checking his phone throughout the day, looking and seeing, checking up on his dad. Yeah. Right. And then thinking, okay, well, you know, oh, hey, you know, Mr. McDonald took my phone. And so it's spending, you know, four, five, six hours, you know, without knowing, I can't even imagine what that would be like. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it just literally brings tears to my eyes to think about that. Yet, yeah. You know, our position as teachers make the story about us. Yeah. And it makes the story about and this is, you know, like the nature of policies. Right. We talk about this in in lots of contexts where like the policies in at places, let's just say universities, because you and I work at universities are almost always written for like the point one percent of people who are jerks. And then the most of the people, most of the time are, are not doing that stuff, but there has to be a policy that says, oh, you have to do X, Y, and Z because, and I think, you know, it's the same thing here with classroom management. Like the idea that there's one response to behavior doesn't right. make any sense, right? It just doesn't like these should be contextualized decisions. They should be responsive decisions. You should look at a kid. You should talk to a kid and say, what is going on here? And and that is the the way that you deal with these issues. It is not to to have a blanket policy. Um, yeah, and and you know I mentioned differentiation. We can talk about it another day, but it comes up there too in this idea Absolutely. of what does that mean. But um, but yeah, I think I think it comes down to that. Like if we treat classroom management as there is a correct response to every situation, and here's what it is. It, it not only dehumanizes the kids, but it also disrespects you as a professional. It says that you yeah. can't be nimble and improvisational and understand your kids and know them well and make decisions based on that. It says that you have to have rules that are true always. And, it, and if there's nothing else we want them to learn about science is that there's no such thing as true always, right? Yeah. So we want them to understand that, that this is, these, are, these are contextual things and they should be. Well, I think that the, the other thing that is sort of embedded in that is that the action is a, a data point. It's mm-hmm. a data point. Yeah. And in order to make a, a decision or a response, we need to collect other data points. Yeah. You know, and other data points require us to inquire and ask and you know, stop the student and pull them aside. And I, I, I think the, if there's one like, final point I want to make, about this. I, I think the, you know, I've been, I've talked a lot about these, these things that, you know, I've collected along the way, these words of wisdom from other mentors and colleagues, you know, they, you know, um, it's, you know, you don't yell at students, you, you know, students needs, are, you know, are not being met in some way. But I think the other one was, you know, someone, someone told me you never embarrass a kid. You never embarrass a kid in front of the, like, yeah. that's the, like the worst emotion. That's the worst thing you can do to a kid is to embarrass them in, in front of their peers. And, and I think that's the, 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 one of those things that 
resonates in my brain when I'm thinking about how to interact or how to engage with a student because I don't want to embarrass them. Yeah. And I know that's really hard because a lot of the actions we do are coming from the place where that story is in our head is that we're you know being disrespected and we want to act out. But then you also have to think about the the, the consequences there of because it's really hard to get those students back. Yeah. Whenever you embarrass them in, in a, a setting. And I think that sometimes our, our, our responses can lead to that. Yeah. And we have to be very careful with that. So yeah. it's a violation of trust, right? That, oh that, yeah. That Absolutely. embarrassment and humiliation is, an, is, is a violation of trust and it's very hard to get trust back. Right. Like trust takes a long time to build up and yeah. it's very easily destroyed. Yeah. That's I, I that is the, that that's the, thing that's the hardest to come to grips with right it take it take years and years to build up trust but a single decision can destroy it yep yeah wow wow wow, wow. let's, let's talk about joys yeah oh gosh so uh joys yeah. Yeah. yeah you got one you you do you go um so do we thought have we talked about the morning show have we talked about the morning show because uh, it's like i don't know have, have I don't, you I don't recall. I, I have not have watched it. Have you watched it? it? Uh-uh. All right. So uh, the morning show is on Apple TV and it stars uh, Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon and Steve Carell and, uh, and others. Um, it's, it is, I, I think the way I've described it to some people, because I've re- recommended the show, it's in its second season. Um, it is not feel good television. It's mm. just good television. Oh, look at you there. What you did. I see that yeah. uh, because you, you, you're it's it, it's so the story is built around like uh, a morning show. That's mm-hmm. kind of like today, the, 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 the today show. Wow. I was really struggling with that. Yeah. The today mm-hmm. show. And it's it. What it does is it imagines what the today show was like after the whole Matt Lauer thing went down. Yeah. So if you remember the Matt Lauer, you know, was accused of all kinds of, you know, um, harassment and and workplace sexual misconduct in in the workplace. And so that's the Steve Carell character. And so what's really, I think, hard to get around is there's these characters that we've really liked, these actors that we really like, like Jennifer Aniston's like, you know, America's sweetheart. Steve Mm -hmm. Carell is, you know, the goofball who's been in all these, you know, great um, series and 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 here he is, and they're playing somebody who's really hard to like because of his actions. And Jennifer Aniston is like this really cold, calculating person. And so all these and Reese Witherspoon's, you know, is another one of America's sweethearts. And yeah. and and they're all in these roles where you know it's it's plays off character for them. Mm. And that it's yeah, it is really great television. But you just walk away, just you know, sometimes taken through the coals yeah yeah because it's a difficult subject matter right for sure yeah no that's well yeah i've i have heard good things about it so i'll have to add it to my list though my list of television programs to watch now is so long that i I know it's like forget about it but uh okay but i'll add it anyway just to make all right just to make you feel better well it'd be Um, a reason to keep apple tv plus you know there you go until Ted Lasso season three comes out again, sure. Or any, not, any day not again until t- it comes out. Um, so, okay. So I'm the, the joy that I'm going to share this week. The thing that's bringing me joy is um, I'm reading Dave Grohl's autobiography called storyteller. Oh, nice. And, uh, and I'm liking it. 
it's uh you know it's it's definitely written by a guy who is like a rock and roll guy um and and not primarily a writer but it's you know it's certainly heartfelt and and uh and has his genuine voice in it um and it's you know i i really like everything i know about dave grohl i really have heard nothing but good things about him and you know um just he's he's got an incredible work ethic and and uh, really sounds like he's just a good guy um so you know the the it's a it's a it's a nice book it's a charming book he's 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 a father he's got uh two daughters and his daughters are sort of following in his footsteps not surprisingly as this happens right but um to be musicians but it's a yeah it's just a good story it starts with him growing up and and sort of tells tells the tale of how he got started into music and how how he got started into rock and roll music and um and then obviously became the drummer for Nirvana and eventually I, formed the Foo Fighters so I I saw him on uh being interviewed on on a, the book tour for this and yeah. his 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 dad was in like like the FBI or something right like he was in government in some way yeah, and his mom in, and his well, mom's he was an raised ac- by his mother really he and his he, mom's an academic right she's in some way i think she's if i'm re- remember correctly she and he dropped out of school when he was like 15 or something yeah he um yeah he's he yeah he became yeah he followed his passion into music sure. right yeah so he uh um yeah so he's he, yeah he's it's an interesting story and and it's an interesting story all the way through like how does a a guy get hooked up with nirvana and how does that become yeah. the thing that it was and then how does it you know, all come crashing down around you. And I don't, what, I don't mean to do like, after? like knock the guy. Cause you know, no, he no. followed his passion and he's like been tremendously successful, but it's, it's always, you know, wild to, you know, hear some like kid at 15 or 16, just like being so, you know, sure that this is their life's calling. Yeah. And it, it, I just always admire that, like that somebody who, and I, and somebody like, I can't imagine my son who's now 15 coming to me and saying, dad, I, 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 I want to go to move to like New York city or move to Seattle or move to uh, LA because me- music is my passion. Yeah. And I don't know as, and so that's where I'm coming from. Like I think about like, okay, that mom is like me and Dave Grohl is like my son. And what would yeah. I do? So that's, you know? So. Yeah. I think that's fair. And I think, I mean, it's interesting though, to see at one point, I think he says explicitly in the book that, that there's some evidence that, that, like the p- kids who end up in with careers in music identify themselves as being sort of career musicians sometime between like age 13 and 15. Um, and if you look at, you know, some of the, and, and it makes sense because by, you know, 21, 22, you've got to be, if you're going to be a success, you've sort of got to be a touring musician already. Right. Right. <clears throat> so, um, so you, you have to put in, you have to start practicing when you're 13, 14, 15 years old and, and, to prepare yourself for that for five or six years later. So, um, but yeah. yeah, it's a good book. I recommend, I give, I'll have to check up. it out. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. All right. There we are. 77, 77. Thanks for hanging out with us. Yeah. Thanks we'll for being see. here. See you next time in between. See you then. Bye now. <laughs>